Hello everyone, Will here. In a moment, we'll get to our episode with Dr. Eric Campion. Later this month, we're going to be releasing a partner episode with paramedic Courtney Coco Wham on research they've done together regarding entitled CO2 in the context of critically injured trauma patients. So stick around for that. But before we get going, on behalf of Ross and me, thank you. Our audience keeps growing and it's awesome to watch. So please help us out. Tell one friend about the podcast and follow us on Instagram at EMSCast. If you have any questions about episodes past or future, you can hit us up. Message us on Instagram or get a hold of us through our website, emspodcast.com. Lastly, stay safe and take care of yourself. Always stay humble. Now our episode. Here you on eight. Here you on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm your host, Will Barry. And I'm Ross Orbit. Today, we're going to be joined by Dr. Eric Campion. Dr. Campion is an attending trauma surgeon at Denver Health Medical Center. He's an associate professor of surgery at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and a former paramedic. Dr. Campion, thanks for joining us. First, uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it and always happy and excited you know, to share what we're doing at Denver Health and what we're doing on the research perspective. But yeah, I mean, I started my career in medicine as a, as a street paramedic in Ann Arbor, Michigan, working for Huron Valley Ambulance. I did uh, paramedic school at nights during college, and then I'd spend the summers kind of working the road and uh, doing some ER shifts as a tech as well. Uh, and then I kept that going all the way through about third year of med school when it's just things got a little too busy to, to keep up with it. But it was a, a fantastic uh, start to my career. And gave me a lot of insight and a lot of ability to recognize sick patients from just seeing them again and again on the street. And so uh, it's something that I've uh, really enjoyed uh, in my past and really enjoy working with in the future and being involved with the Denver paramedics and, um, you know, helping out whenever I can, both with education and, uh, you know, whatever they need from me. So it's been great. It's really cool to sit down and talk with you because I knew you had the EMS backgrounds. Your presentation was about entitled CO2 and hemorrhagic shock. And there is a, a research paper about this topic that's about to be released. And we're going to be speaking with paramedic Coco Wham, who did a lot of work on this project. But one of the things that struck Ross and I listening to your presentation is the journey you went on to get there. And so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about where the hypothesis came from. Yeah, that's a really good question. And and it all started even before we started looking at entitled CO2. I was very interested in like point of care testing and considering things like point of care lactate and stuff like that in the pre-hospital setting. And there's certainly been some research in that forum, but there's a lot of barriers to that. So it's it's not all that cheap to get the the stuff you would need to do it. And it's a single kind of static thing. So if you do, let's say you take a, a point of care lactate or a venous blood gas, et cetera, you get one data at one point in time, and that's all you get. And so um, it, it's it's a good start, but it's imperfect. And, and especially because of the cost, it wasn't something that's super practical. Around this same time, uh, we were noticing, you know, in the operating room that patients that were in severe shock that we were doing big trauma laparotomies for were on their blood gases, which are usually taken, you know, 30 minutes into the case once things settled down a little bit for the anesthesiologist to be able to draw them. 
we were noticing that their plasma CO2, the carbon dioxide in their blood, was, was quite high, and uh, yet they were really acidotic. And so if you remember your respiratory physiology in general, if you're doing a good job adjusting the ventilator because we're handling all of their respiratory status in the OR, uh, you'd expect that plasma CO2 to hopefully be you know, normal or low to accommodate for their metabolic acidosis. This wasn't happening, and we have fantastic anesthesiologists and CRNA, so we knew it wasn't just a, a basic misunderstanding. And what it turned out to be, at least in some respects, is a little bit of over-reliance on the end-tidal CO2, which was uh, falsely low due to the lack of perfusion in the lungs. So basically, the, the anesthesiologist, CRNA, they're in the case, you guys are operating, they're making their ventilator adjustments based on the end-tidal CO2 they're seeing, and then partway through the case, they draw a blood gas, and they're like, oh my gosh, there's a mismatch here. Is that right? It, that, that is absolutely a part of it. And some of it is, too, um, when you reach uh, extreme levels of shock, because you're not perfusing your lungs, you just simply can't blow that CO2 down low enough. Um, but the, the end result is, is you have a falsely low end-tidal CO2. And this isn't something that's you know, totally groundbreaking. This has been recognized for a long time, but it's never really been applied very frequently in this way. And so it's a little bit of a kind of a novel use of this technology. I don't want to pretend like we're the first people to ever notice this. It's been rep reported on for uh, a couple decades now in a, a paper here and there, but it, it hadn't really been a big point of emphasis. Talk a little bit about why we think that happens. So you said in the lecture in a normal patient, your entitled CO2 will only be about two or five points off from your actual plasma CO2. But in, in these hemorrhagic shock patients or other critically ill patients, we'll see this discrepancy. Why is that? Yeah, the thought process is, and again, th this has um, been demonstrated in animal labs and, and other things, but you know, the full physiology has not necessarily been completely elucidated. But the, the thought being that when you go into states of severe shock and you're shunting all of your blood, that you're actually decreasing the perfusion to your lungs. And when you have that decreased perfusion to your lungs, you, your gas exchange is not as efficient. And therefore, you're not able to blow off that CO2 that you otherwise would. Yeah. So your, your first study was retrospective. Is that correct? And you just compared these values, right? The, the end tidal values and the, the, the blood gas values. And you were not totally surprised at the discrepancies you found. What, what did you guys study next? Yeah. Well, we, yeah, the first study, really, we just looked at the discrepancies between the two and we were able to identify a couple of things. One, that a, a significant proportion of the patients had a large discrepancy in those values and that those patients that had that large discrepancy were at much higher risk of death. And so that was kind of what kind of got me thinking. So after we published that study, I've been doing some of this thought and, and trying to look into research on different ways that we can identify sick patients in the pre-hospital setting. And that's when it came to that, well, hey, maybe this is something we can apply there. And so then we decided to do a retrospective study just to look at a proof of concept. And we started just by looking at intubated patients that had been intubated in the pre-hospital setting. And as part of the routine practice by the Denver paramedics, they record end-tidal CO2 values. And so we just looked at those and compared the absolute level, because we didn't have a blood gas to compare to, uh, and their outcomes. And to get into some of the numbers of, I believe, that first study, you guys found that in, now just a reminder of what this patient population is, this is sick, critically ill trauma patients who are intubated and in the OR. That's right. Um, but you found that 45% of them had a discrepancy of over 10 millimeters of mercury between their in-tidal and their plasma CO2. And, and even 15% of them had a discrepancy of greater than 20 millimeters of mercury. 
And each of those correlated with a significantly increased worse outcome when they had that discrepancy. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so we didn't really focus on the absolute values in that study, but those discrepancies were highly correlative to mortality. So you got to thinking, can we catch this earlier in patients who are, again, intubated in the pre-hospital setting who have had entitled CO2 recorded? And is there a correlation with those numbers in mortality? Absolutely. And we knew we weren't going to have blood gases to compare to, so that gap was not necessarily going to be relevant. But that being said, we figured that it, it might just be enough to see absolute values that were on the low side. And as we started to look at the study, it was pretty consistent that values you know, in the lower 20s and a little different study by study were consistent with an increased risk of mortality and increased risk of massive transfusions, kind of a surrogate of hemorrhagic shock. But these are still intubated, critically ill trauma patients. So these are people we already, our, our spidey senses is up. We already know they're critically ill. We're already thinking critically about them. And so you wanted to take it one step further. Yeah, that's right. So, well, I think uh, having that information on intubated patients is helpful and can, can lead to a, a number of improvements in care. Overall, as you stated, like the patients were already kind of triaged to being very sick, right? Like any intubated trauma patient is already a sick patient. And so the next step, and what we wanted to take it to, is to look at the non-intubated patient. And luckily, the entitled uh, CO2 sampling cannulas have become more and more popular and been utilized for other medical illnesses and medical restaurant illnesses more and more frequently. And so they're, being, uh, they're pretty widely available. And so we were able to utilize those to do further studies. And we're not going to get into the details of that study because, as you mentioned with Paramedic uh, Wham, we're going to actually deep dive into the specifics of how that study was performed and those numbers and those outcomes. But Spoiler, we may be able to use nasal cannula in tidal CO2 uh, to predict some outcomes in these trauma patients as well. I wanted to ask you, has this, how has this changed your management moving forward? Well, we certainly pay more attention to the end tidal CO2 earlier on when we have that information. But I'm also, you know, as a researcher, I make it very clear that this is still relatively preliminary. I think the data in each study is, is consistent, so that's really looking good. But it's, um, it's been done in very specific clinical settings. And so my next goal after, you know, you guys discuss the study with uh, Paramedic Wham is really to, to take it into a much broader, much larger study to really validate it in different scenarios. But one of the things that I think has a real opportunity to change practice is not only for triage, which I think is important, but in a lot of EMS systems, they may only have one major trauma center and they're going to be taking patients there anyway. So like, oh, well, why does this matter? And one of the things that we think about is we continue to push EMS interventions further and further. So, you know, a number of services out there are using blood products. Certainly TXA has kind of permeated the EMS uh, literature. And any other intervention you might want to consider, well, a lot of those come with risks, right? So we don't want to give them to every patient. You don't want to be giving blood to patients that don't need it because there are risks associated with blood. So anything we can do to more like narrowly select which patients need those interventions, I think can have a real clinical benefit. And I think it's also going to be really important for future research studies. So let's say that we do, we just, we actually able to establish that entitled CO2 is the best um, way to quickly and rapidly identify seriously injured patients. Well, let's say I want to introduce a a new drug or a new blood product. 
Well, instead of saying, okay, everyone with a blood pressure less than 80, we're going to try this on, we're going to randomize them. Now it's like, no, 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 we're going to randomize patients that have an entitled CO2 of less than 22 because we know that's more accurate. And therefore we put any adverse effects of whatever intervention we want to do on less patients and maximize the benefits to the folks that really need it. That was something that I know we'll dig into pretty deeply with with paramedic wham but something that was um interesting to me is triage has typically been done as you pointed out with really basic stuff i mean systolic blood pressure mental status and mechanism of injury this is preliminarily outperforms those things in its ability to to triage patients am i correct that's pretty cool yeah, the, the preliminary data is looking really strong that it is, is probably more accurate than those kind of historic measures. And, and really, um, if we can take this to the next level and get some funding to do a really big study, maybe with several thousand patients, I'm really excited to, to not only just look at entitled CO2, but maybe look at entitled CO2 in combination with blood pressure or some of these other, or heart rate. You know, maybe you know, if your blood pressure is less than 60, it doesn't matter. But if your blood pressure is above 90 and your entitled CO2 is a certain value, then all of a sudden, you know, you, you triage yourself into that same level of risk as the patient with the blood pressure in the 60s or 70s. And that's the kind of stuff that's really exciting. And when we can start to get big data on lots of patients, we can start to make more meaningful interpretations. And it, it may be as simple as uh, you know, a mathematical formula we can put in an app and you just pop in the numbers and all of a sudden it gives you a kind of a risk calculator of, you know, risk of, of needing an emergency operation, risk of needing blood, risk of death. But those are the things we need a little bit bigger studies to definitively show. Yeah, it's really exciting to me as a pre-hospital provider because data like this that originated in the OR, I feel like it could have stopped there. But I think it's awesome that you had the curiosity to say, how can this impact pre-hospital and not just our hospital process, trauma activation, that sort of thing, but to actually put tools in the hands of the pre-hospital providers, I just think that's awesome. So I guess if nothing else, thank you. I think it, the research is exciting. I can't wait to see where it goes. Yeah. Well, well thank you. And I, I think having that EMS background in my early career is critical to, you know, being able to, to think of these things. And, and I really appreciate working with my emergency medicine colleagues as well as the paramedics so that we can all work together because I think there's a lot of synergy and we all come from a little bit different clinical background. Um, but you know, having that uh, shared experience uh, as a pre-hospital provider early in my career allows me to translate some of the things that I see in the operating room or with bleeding control or other things back to the field and to get, give back in that way. If we're able to identify hemorrhagic shock earlier and accurately, what are some interventions that could potentially be done earlier to impact mortality on hemorrhagic shock patients? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And so there's a couple of things that kind of immediately come to mind. Number one is getting the right patient at the right place at the right time. So, you know, in, in Denver, we have pretty clear uh, delineation of where patients go and, and we have a, a lot of level one trauma centers, but that's not the case around the country. And in more rural areas, it may be really helpful to be able to better define early on who's at risk for needing some of these interventions. And then secondarily, I think certain things, uh, I think pre-hospital blood products, especially as they continually become more stable, um, some of the freeze-dried products that are in testing right now that are not available to the street at the moment, but, but maybe in the next few years um, would be tremendously valuable if we knew. And then looking at other dimensions, TXA is a great example. I can't get into some details, some other research, but 
uh, let's just say is a, a brief spoiler that uh, the end tidal CO2 values may correlate with some of the coagulopathy numbers as well. And so it may be something that can directly help us decide which patients would benefit from TXA and which ones would not. Yeah. With regards to blood, we were actually having a conversation before this recording um, about when to give blood and and how it's a finite resource. It's a precious resource that we do need to be a little protective of, right? And not giving it out to everyone. Um, and is, you know, using a something like a systolic of 90 is your firm cutoff. We, we only give blood if the systolic is less than that. It feels like you're protecting the blood, but it can also make you feel a little uneasy if you have like a pale diaphoretic patient in front of you with a heart rate of 130 who has like clear signs of hemorrhage or clear story for hemorrhage. And you, you almost feel like, am I waiting and getting behind the ball by waiting for that decompensation and that decompensated shock before giving blood? And so if we can potentially identify the right patients to both protect the blood products that we have, but also stay ahead of the A-ball. Yeah, totally. And, and I think, again, all of these interventions, including giving blood, are, are not free. I mean, there, there are some risks associated with it. So you want to just make sure we're always maximizing the risk and benefit. And that's where whenever we can better define who needs it, both with vital signs and any other physiologic factors that we can identify, it's the right thing for the patient. It's the right thing for the blood bank. It's the right thing for everyone. Perfect. Thanks so much, Dr. Campion. Yeah, thanks so much, Dr. Campion. It's awesome. Well, thank you very much for having me and uh, thanks for doing this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.